Hello, and welcome to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. I'm series producer Katie Blackley. We've had a blast making Good Question stories for the past few years, reporting on everything from the Pittsburgh accent to the history of inclines. All of our features are based on questions submitted by you, our curious listeners. I'm so glad you've joined us. Today, we're revisiting our very first Good Question story, based on a listener who noticed a hole in the southern part of a Pittsburgh map. And I learned that this hole is actually the Mount Oliver Borough, and it's right next to the Mount Oliver neighborhood. So what's the difference? Stay with us after this quick break. Support for the Good Question podcast is made possible by the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, bringing great music to Pittsburgh for 126 years. Calendar of performances and ticket information is available at pittsburghsymphony.org. Recently, you may have heard about Pittsburgh considering the annexation of Wilkinsburg. Annexation is like the city equivalent of a company buying another business, and it's how Pittsburgh grew its population and geographic area in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But it's a complicated topic, since it gets into economics, politics, and community identity. Although the Wilkinsburg annexation has been tabled for now, we had one listener who wanted to talk about a different adjacent borough. Let's hear from him and dive into the story. My name is Daniel Tatchik, and I'm a communications manager at Carnegie Mellon University, and I live in Greenfield. So I I have a Pittsburgh neighborhood map in my dining room, and I've always noticed that there's a hole in the southern part of the city, like not an actual literal hole, but a piece of Pittsburgh that's missing, that's not actually recognized as being part of the city, so it just shows up as a hole. And I learned that this hole is actually the Mount Oliver Borough, and it's right next to the Mount Oliver neighborhood. So my question is, what happened? What's the story there? If you look at a neighborhood map, as Tachik did, you'll see what he's referring to. Mount Oliver Borough is surrounded by the neighborhoods of Arlington, Knoxville, Carrick, and, of course, Mount Oliver, the city neighborhood. Going forward, that's how we'll distinguish them. Mount Oliver Borough and Mount Oliver City. Let's get some stats out of the way first. Mount Oliver Borough has about six times as many people as the city neighborhood, topping out around 3,400 at recent estimates. Both neighborhoods are built on land that once belonged to John Ormsby, a famous general during the French and Indian War. Until 1892, the borough was part of St. Clair Township. City Councilor Bruce Krause has presided over South Pittsburgh neighborhoods for more than a decade, and he grew up on the South Side. He says right before the turn of the 20th century, Mount Oliver residents became unhappy about the services they were receiving from St. Clair and decided to petition for signatures to become their own borough. So at that time, it required only 140 signatures, uh, and they achieved that amount of signatures. And then what was known then as the quarter courts approved the proposal and officially made Mount Oliver a borough. But only part of the neighborhood became independent. The remainder was left behind, still part of St. Clair Township. Fast forward a couple decades when the growing city of Pittsburgh started annexing southern neighborhoods, hungry for a larger population and tax base. While St. Clair joined the city, Mount Oliver Borough did not. Here's Mount Oliver Borough manager Rick Hopkinson. You know, all of these areas around, all the South Pittsburgh neighborhoods were boroughs at one time. And actually the city um, annexed Carrick and Knoxville in 1927. So well after our incorporation, we held out. But why? Why did they want to remain a separate borough? Our question asker, Daniel Tachik, had one idea. Maybe it's some tax reason or something. Hopkinson says... Kind of. 
Back in the 1920s, when all the South Pittsburgh neighborhoods were being annexed, Hopkinson says Mount Oliver was in its prime. It had over 7,000 residents and a strong working-class community. They didn't need Pittsburgh. And they remembered their problems with getting services as part of St. Clair. For most Mount Oliver borough residents, being small meant being accessible. If we were a part of the city, we would just be sort of another one of the 90 neighborhoods competing for resources. So they stayed independent while the Mount Oliver City neighborhood was gobbled up with St. Clair and became a part of Pittsburgh in 1923. But that's just a legal history based on boundaries that can feel arbitrary to the residents. Kathy Niederberger grew up on Ottila Street in Mount Oliver City, right on the border of the borough. Growing up in the 70s, Niederberger says there weren't a lot of tangible differences between the city and the borough. Sure, the street signs were different colors. In the borough, they're green. In the city, they're blue. But other than that, Niederberger says the two neighborhoods were pretty unified. We called it Mount Oliver. We didn't distinguish between Mount Oliver City and Mount Oliver Borough. We all lived in Mount Oliver. It was only, you know, more as an adult that I realized there was um, a technical name for where we lived, which was Mount Oliver City. Carol Conroy, who also grew up in the city neighborhood, agrees. She says the area was always close. You just didn't think of it. You just considered yourself all from Mount Oliver. Today, the borough government remains independent. They have a mayor and seven council members. But they also share some services with the city, like EMS and a school board. Kraus says the communities also help each other for police and fire backup, and both have a strong commitment to neighborhood block watches. While annexation is still floated today, Councilman Kraus says he doesn't see that happening anytime soon. I think there's a very rich history and a very deep-seated pride there, and I think um, that leads them to continue to keep their independence. Hopkinson says annexation isn't really on the radar in the borough. Once in a while, if somebody's upset, they might throw that out there, but they don't mean it, I promise. (laughs) Hopkinson has a book that came out in 1992 as part of the borough's centennial celebration. You notice the slogan says, surrounded but as independent as the day we were founded. This year, the borough is turning 130, and it doesn't seem like they'll be voting to annex anytime soon. Get Pittsburgh news and Pittsburgh stories delivered right to your inbox every weekday morning at 7 with Inbox Edition, a newsletter from WESA. It's a quick read that brings you up to speed on the most important topics of the day. It's easy to subscribe at wesa.fm slash inbox. Welcome back. One of Pittsburgh's defining features is its many varied neighborhoods, But that hasn't always been the case. Before residents distinguished between Squirrel Hill, Lawrenceville, or Troy Hill, the city's political power was once in its wards. Pasted to the wall of the Department of City Planning is a large, colorful map of Pittsburgh. It's divided into seven colors, denoting city planning sections and parks, and a light red line squiggles through the jagged map. That made good question listener Jim Hathaway curious. My question is about the 90 neighborhoods of Pittsburgh. I'd like to know how they came to be, uh, how the boundaries are drawn. Pittsburgh's always had neighborhoods. They were originally defined by geographic features like rivers and hills, but also by railroad tracks and ethnic groups. Residents identified with their neighborhoods, but they didn't have a lot of political strength. Pittsburgh Foundation Senior Programming Officer Jane Downing says when she was working in city planning, leaders of the individual wards wielded all the power. Ward bosses would come in, negotiate with the mayor or with city council about where roads should be paved, where parks should be built, where development should occur, things like that. 
Then in 1969, Pete Flaherty became mayor, running as an independent and promising to fight political corruption. He wanted to create a system based on data and non-political affiliation to make recommendations on how city capital expenditures primarily should be allocated. So he created a neighborhood planning division within the city planning department to focus on the needs of these individual regions, like building new fire stations or improving business districts. At the same time, residents were asked to define the boundaries of their neighborhoods. Based on their responses and existing census data, the lines of each neighborhood were drawn, and the city formed a new map. That's when they started to publish maps that had the neighborhood names according to census tract. Each census tract contains roughly 4,000 people. Neighborhoods like Shadyside include multiple census tracts, but smaller neighborhoods like Northview Heights have just one. The names of neighborhoods were based on things like historic landowners, natural features, and the location of major industrial sites. Having defined neighborhoods brought other benefits. They're used for analytical purposes. The city can track median household income, family size, that sort of thing. Plus, it makes it easier for neighborhoods to market themselves. That was the job of Josette Fitzgibbons with the Urban Redevelopment Authority. She used to work for an organization called the Neighborhoods for Living Center. The goal was to say, we are a city, but we have 90 neighborhoods, and each one has its own character. And these are the things that are great about each of these neighborhoods. In the 1980 census, there were 88 city neighborhoods. A decade later, the final two were added, North Shore and South Shore. She says unless the city annexes another municipality, that number 90 will stand. The boundaries aren't perfect, and sometimes the official line might be outside of where a resident self-identifies, but she says the city tries its best. It's an inexact science. Neighborhood boundaries is an inexact science. Fitzgibbon says the hodgepodge of neighborhoods is a big part of Pittsburgh's charm. It's part of what makes us such a great city, that there's these little pockets that are incredible little pockets and it's just part of the fabric of the city. Our final story for today takes us through downtown Pittsburgh. Walking down 4th Avenue, you might feel like you're being watched. And you are. There are about a dozen pairs of eyes glaring down at you. They're made of gray and brown stone, some with intricate carved manes. They're lions. That's right, lions. They're a common sight on this stretch of downtown. Good question listener Joshua Reeder wanted to know, why all the lions? I take a, a walk through downtown regularly, and I noticed uh, going down 4th Avenue, there are lions everywhere looking at me from different angles on all of the buildings. The 4th Avenue lions have a very important job to guard. Lions protect what we value. That's Louise Sturgis. She's the executive director of Pittsburgh History and Landmarks Foundation. Fourth Avenue was Pittsburgh's Wall Street. It was the heart of our financial district. And so lions there show people who are depositing money in those very institutions that your money is safe here. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, dozens of banks opened along the narrow Fourth Avenue corridor. They were following the money. Oil, steel, natural gas, all were booming industries in the city. And their rich tycoons needed somewhere to deposit their fortunes. We had so much wealth concentrated in this town, and bankers could be wealthy clients, and they could afford to hire the best local architects or famous architects from out of town to design a state-of-the-art sculpture at the time. Fourth Avenue is very narrow, only about 25 feet wide. 
but architects worked with what they had, building some of the city's first skyscrapers. Sturgis says back in the day, the avenue would have been packed. People would have filled the sidewalks. You would have heard different languages, too, in the early 1900s. It would have been a hustling, bustling place, and you knew that you were on an important street. For thousands of years, lines have symbolized wealth, significance, and prosperity. On 4th Avenue, you'll see some carvings called masks. They're just the face of the lion. You'll see them over entryways and on the lining of building facades. The most recognizable pair of lions are full-bodied and lounging near the corner of 5th Avenue and Smithfield Street. They're the Dollar Bank Lions, and they've been guarding the institution since 1871. They were carved by Max Kohler and his assistant Richard Morgan. Dollar Bank Multimedia Production Specialist Dorothy Spangler says because the lions are so iconic, the bank decided to restore the originals in 2009. They began to degrade due to the weather and the exposure. So after consulting experts about how best to approach uh, preserving the lions, they said, well, you could restore them, but we really recommend that you put them inside the building afterwards. So between 2009 and 2013, Dollar Bank had the original lions removed and restored and placed them inside. They also hired master carver Nicholas Fairplay and his assistant Brian Baker to create exact replicas. Those are the ones you'll see outside today. Spangler says the new lions are pretty much identical. Just like the originals, they also pose in the classical couchant and recumbent positions, or guarding and resting. He's alert. He's not in an aggressive pose. He's really in a, a very watchful, majestic pose. And the other lion we've actually put on some of our holiday cards because he's the lion who's very peaceful and friendly looking. During the summer, the Pittsburgh History and Landmarks Foundation has a walking tour of downtown Pittsburgh, with one specifically focused on Fourth Avenue. And Spangler says when groups of kids take the tour, they always have the same question. Do they have names? The answer is no, they do not have names. Fourth Avenue isn't the only stretch of Pittsburgh with lines in the architecture. There are lines guarding the Allegheny County Courthouse, some in the Frick Building, and you can even find some hiding in the walls of older mansions in the East End. They're a reminder of Pittsburgh's wealth and power, and ultimately, they're there to protect. Thanks for listening to our Good Question podcast. Special thanks to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting for helping with the show. You can check out more of our stories on our website, wesa.fm slash goodquestion. Our fourth episode will launch next Thursday when we'll look at the rise and fall of Skybus. You know, imagine if the first autonomous vehicle in the world was a mass transit, public transit vehicle. I'm Katie Blackley. Have a wonderful day. And as always, stay curious.